I do want to uh, invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Lamentations chapter 4. We will be finishing Lamentations 4 this morning. We're going to look at verses 17 through 22. If you're using the blue ESV Bible in the seat backs in front of you, you can find our text on page 690. 690. And the title of our sermon is Watching in Vain, and the keywords for our worshipers and training for our children to be listening for, um, our keywords are save, anointed, and exile. Lamentations 4, verses 17 through 22, is where we find ourselves this morning. And I want to open with this. Um, I trust you are all familiar, quite familiar, with the movie Braveheart, um, one of my favorites. Uh, The movie opens in the year 1820 as England invades and conquers Scotland. A young William Wallace witnesses the execution of several Scottish nobles. He suffers the deaths of his brother and his father as they were fighting against the English And then uh, William is taken abroad on a pilgrimage throughout Europe, and he is educated by his paternal uncle, Argyle. Years later, a grown Wallace returns to Scotland and marries his childhood friend, Murrin McLagan. Shortly after their nuptials, Wallace rescues Murrin from being uh, raped by English soldiers, and he sends her off on a horseback and tells her, uh, to, to meet him in the grove. And he's got some fighting left to do, and so he fights his way through many soldiers, and he escapes to their uh, predetermined meeting place. But Murrin, unbeknownst to Wallace, is knocked off her horse and captured. And moments before she is executed, her eyes search the tree line in desperation. You can see her. She is watching, hoping, waiting, praying even that her beloved would return to save the day. It it is a really powerful moment where the fear, the agony, and the vanity of the moment are on full display in Marin's eyes. She's looking out in desperation for salvation, but sadly none was to come. And Wallace, waiting in the grove, was watching vainly for his beloved to appear. And fairly unceremoniously, moments later, she is killed. And our our passage today in Lamentations 4 reminds us that we too vainly set our hope and confidence in the might of men. Last week we saw that rather than a triumphant exploration of joy in God in light of the the glorious heights that had been reached in the third poem concerning our confidence in God, when we get to this fourth poem in Lamentations 4, what we find is a a return to sorrow, a return to grief, and a return to pain. When we get to Lamentations 4, we are reminded that yes, God's covenant love never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. God's faithfulness is great. He's compassionate, He's just, and He's sovereign. And yet, 
even in that hope, even with a reconciled God, a restored God, as we get at the end of the third poem, suffering is still real. It is still present and it still hurts. And so the poet takes the first 16 verses of this fourth poem to rehearse and lament a number of reversals that had been brought upon Jerusalem by God through the Babylonian invasion of 586 B.C., which is the the event that brought about the writing of this book in the first place. And then today what we're going to see is that he's shifted his focus. He speaks uh, entirely in in the third person in the first uh, 16 verses, but here he shifts in verse 17 to give a a first-person account and perspective of, of the whole thing. And so let me read... These verses, 17 through 22, we'll outline them and get to work. He says, Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under His shadow, we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Eden, Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. But to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is completed, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. There are just two big ideas that I want you to see with me from this text today. First, in verses 17 through 20, we will see the utter futility and folly of trusting in the might of men. And second, in verses 21 and 22, we will see that God alone is where salvation can be found. So look with me in the first place at verses 17 through 20, where we see the futility and the folly of trusting in the might of men. Three times in verse 17, we read some version of the word watch. Three repetitions of this term watching draw us into the moment. Repetition is a a useful tool in the hands of a skilled poet. and, And he does that here. Our eyes failed, ever watching Vainly for hope, for help. In our watching, we watch. He draws us in and he wants us to imagine this watching. Like we, like you see in Murren's eyes in Braveheart, here Jerusalem is watching vainly for help. Jerusalem is completely surrounded. They have nothing with which to defend themselves. Their enemy is closing in slowly but surely. And so what do they do? They watch. They look. They, they strain their eyes to see if on the horizons, perhaps somewhere, somehow, hope and help will come. And yet, the poet plainly says it was to no avail. It was To no end. He says their eyes failed in their watching. They watched in vain for a nation that could not save. 
for whom were they looking? Well, the poet almost certainly has Egypt in mind here. And I want to take a few minutes and and give you uh, as brief of a snapshot as possible of the history between Israel and Egypt um, as to why I believe that's who he's thinking about here. Because I think it matters. It matters that it's Egypt that they are looking for. This is the nation that they're waiting for to help. And so if you think about Zion, Israel, and Egypt, they have a long history And it began back in Genesis. Before Israel was even a formal nation, Israel was just a large family. You had Jacob, renamed Israel, his sons and their children. Uh, And eventually they they moved to to Egypt uh, through a a string of providential circumstances that, that prevent them from dying in an extreme famine. So in Genesis... Uh, 37 through 50, you can read about this. But then when they get to Egypt and Joseph, uh, uh, Israel's son, he eventually dies. The new Pharaoh doesn't know Joseph, and so he enslaves Israel. They're enslaved for over 400 years until God, through Moses, rescues Israel. Now consisting of millions of people, he saves them from Egypt. He gives them his law. He constitutes them as a nation at Sinai, and he promises them a land of their own. Repromises a land of their own that he had promised back to Abraham. And you can read about this Exodus in the book of Exodus and this, the law that he gave them in, in Leviticus as well. But then as you move on into Numbers and they depart from Mount Sinai, you, you realize that the people had a longing for Egypt lodged deep in their hearts. During the rescue... From Egypt, in Exodus 14, the people tell Moses that they wish he had just left them in Egypt. And immediately after the rescue, two times before they even get to Mount Sinai, in Exodus 15 and 16, they tell him they wish they had died in Egypt. And then in Numbers 11, the first thing they do when they depart from Mount Sinai is what? They complain because in their minds they're remembering the fish, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic that they had while they were slaves. So three times before they get to Mount Sinai, immediately after leaving Mount Sinai, they complain wanting to either stay, die, or go back to Egypt. In Deuteronomy, they finally get to the edge of the promised land of Canaan. They're They've wandered for decades, longing for Egypt, longing for what God had rescued them from. And on the the edge of the promised land, Moses gives them final instructions before they are to actually enter into this land, conquer it under the leadership of Joshua. And there's a set of instructions that he gives that are particularly relevant for our discussion this morning. And I want you to consider them with me briefly. In Deuteronomy 17... 14 through 18, God instructs Israel concerning those who would be king among them. So the king, he says, this, starting in verse 16, he says, Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people, what? To return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excess silver and gold. The point? 
Why, why bring this up? Well, the people's longing for Egypt and Yahweh's prohibition against returning to Egypt is a major theme in the Old Testament. And it bears on our passage here this morning. And I'll show you this. So fast forward a little bit to 1st and 2nd Samuel, where God establishes this king prophesied or, or instructed about in Deuteronomy 17. In 1st and 2nd Samuel, God establishes his kingdom on earth. He establishes this king in Israel. And we read about Saul and David, the first two kings of Israel. And no significant mention of Egypt is made with regard to either of them uh, that I could find. And so then David dies, and his son Solomon takes the throne in 1 Kings 2. And as you read the account about Solomon, things get off to a roaring start. A great start. Solomon is endowed with wisdom far beyond his, compa- his companions, far beyond anyone else ever. Israel flourishes. Solomon's reign is extended all the way from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the borders of Egypt. And Solomon builds the temple, the temple that David wanted to build. Not a tabernacle that had to be broken down and set up and moved all over the place. A real fixed temple that would stay in one place. Solomon builds it. And in 1 Kings 8, the glory of the Lord fills the temple so that the priest uh, couldn't even minister there. It was, it was too much. And so Solomon dedicates uh, the temple. He praises the Lord. He blesses God. He blesses the people. And God makes a covenant with with uh, Solomon in 1 Kings 9. And it all builds to a climax in 1 Kings chapter 10, where the wisdom and fame of Solomon, given to him by God, had reached the queen of Sheba, some 1,500 miles away. She comes and she says this, "Your, Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has, um, who has set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. And then the king and the queen, they exchange gifts and she departs to her own land. And it, it's quite a scene. And it, and it seems like all of the hopes of Israel were finally coming true. If you're reading 1 Kings for the first time, you would think, this is it. This is the guy. This is the, 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 the Genesis 3.15 serpent crusher. But then your heart would sink immediately when you get to chapter 10, verse 14. And you start to read. The text tells us of the wealth of Solomon, which, in the words of Deuteronomy 17, would be considered in excess. And then in verse 28 we read, And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Ku, and the king's traders received them from Ku at a price. And then in chapter 11, verses 1-8, through we read that Solomon took for himself many wives, many foreign wives, and his heart was led astray, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then for Israel, it's pretty much all downhill from there. And while we see it, Deuteron- like all of Deuteronomy 17's prohibitions um, for the king being violated here, it's Solomon's partnership with Egypt that is of most importance to us as we think about Lamentations 4, 17. Solomon's return to Egypt, is, it, it follows the pattern that, 
had been set by those at Israel's inception, and it is a pattern followed by those who would come after him. Fast forward again a few hundred years from Solomon to the 8th century B.C. when Judah was under the siege of the Assyrian army. This is about 150 years before the final Babylonian invasion of 586. In Isaiah 31, Yahweh warns against going down to Egypt and relying on horses and trusting in chariots. But then in Isaiah 36, what does Israel do? What does Judah do? That exact thing. They, they look to Egypt for help. But this return to Egypt proves useless and, and futile. And, and it's only when God himself slays 185,000 Assyrians in a single night that Judah is saved. And then we find a passage in Jeremiah 37 with a rather curious, almost throwaway line. We get to Jeremiah 37. We're, we're just about a decade before the destruction of the city. Babylon was in full control of the war. Judah was already a, a vassal kingdom for Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had set up, set up a man named Zedekiah, who was Josiah's son. He had set him up as king of, of Babylon. But in, um, in uh, Jeremiah 37, we read that neither he nor the people feared or obeyed the Lord. So look what he says in verse 3, beginning of verse 3. King Zedekiah sent... Jehuchal, the son of Shelemiah, and Zephaniah, the priest, the son of Maaseiah, to Jeremiah, the prophet, saying, Please pray for us to the Lord our God. Now Jeremiah was still going in and out among the people, for he had not yet been put in prison. And here it is. The army of Pharaoh had come out of Egypt, and when the Chaldeans who were besieging Jerusalem heard news about them, they withdrew from Jerusalem. So why, why, why does Jeremiah slip in this line about Egypt? Why tell this story? Other than is it just recounting facts that Egypt shows up, Babylon withdraws a bit, and then they come back and destroy the city? Why, why does that matter? Well, it, it seems that despite the clear and multiple warnings by the Lord not to do so, and despite receiving no help from Egypt, Previously, when they had been under attack by the Assyrians, Jerusalem, once more, was looking to Egypt for salvation. But then look at what Jeremiah says in verses 6-10 through 10 here. He says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Thus shall you say to the king of Judah, who sent you to me to inquire of me, Behold, Pharaoh's army that came to help you is about to return to Egypt, to its own land. And the Chaldeans shall come back and fight against this city. They shall capture it and burn it with fire. Thus says the Lord, Do not deceive yourselves, saying, The Chaldeans will surely go away from us, for they will not go away. For even if you should defeat the whole army of Chaldeans who are fighting against you, and there remained of them only wounded men, every man in his tent, they would rise up and burn the city with fire. And so back to Lamentations 4. Jerusalem watched for someone to save. And Lamentations 4 is almost certainly talking about, about Egypt giving the nation's history of looking to Egypt. And, but it's all vanity. And he, he says this in verses 18 through 20. Right? They dogged our steps. We couldn't walk in the streets. Our inn drew near. Our days were numbered. 
our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than eagles. They chased us on the mountains and they would lie in wait for us. The poet gives us vivid first-person imagery here of what had happened. Despite our hope for some nation to come and save us, Babylon hunted us down, chased us, and captured us. And then he zeroes in on someone in particular in verse 20. Look what he says. He says, The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured. Who is that? Who is the Lord's anointed? Who is the breath of our nostrils? Well, he's talking about the king. The breath of our nostrils was a common description used to describe Canaanite and Egyptian leaders in the literature of those countries. The idea was that the the very lives of the people depended upon the king, and so he was referred to as the the breath of, of their nostrils. And then he makes it clear, right? If there's any doubt, he, he says, I'm talking about the Lord's anointed. In 1 Samuel 24, 26, and in 2 Samuel 1, David calls Saul, what? The Lord's anointed. And so the poet proclaims the result of all of this, this watching that they had done. What happened? The king was captured. And not to be going back and forth too much, but we're, we're drawn back into Jeremiah here. And, and this time, uh, Jeremiah 39. In Jeremiah 39, we read about King Zedekiah's 11th year. In his 11th year, after a two-year siege by Babylon, which, interestingly enough, the siege began in response to Zedekiah's conspiracy with Egypt against Babylon— Ezekiel mentions that in chapter 17. So two years later, a breach is finally made in the city. Look what we find in verses 4 through 7 of Jeremiah 39. When Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, the Babylonian army, they fled, going out of the city at night by way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls. And then they went toward the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And when they had taken him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah, in the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah at Riblah before his eyes, and the king of Babylon slaughtered all the nobles of Judah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. In Jeremiah 52, we learn that Zedekiah remained in prison until the day of his death. And so there, there it is. The, the king, the Lord's anointed, his sons and the nobles of Judah were all put to death. The promises attached to Jerusalem's king, according to God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, had seemingly come to an end. Consider what the Lord promises to David in 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 9. He says, I have been with you wherever you went, I have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. 
But when we get to Lamentations 4 and, and Jeremiah 39, we see that despite these promises, despite the warnings against returning to their former captors, Jerusalem failed to place their hope in God. They were always looking. They were always looking for help and for hope to come from somewhere else. They expected salvation to come from an earthly king. Usually Egypt. But as we see in the New Testament, they expect it to come from this earthly Messiah that would set up a kingdom to overthrow Rome. So here in Lamentations 4, we see the folly of placing one's hope in man. In the might of man. Egypt couldn't save them. The king couldn't save them. So the question for us is really quite simple. What, what are your eyes searching for? Do you find yourself regularly returning to the same sources of salvation that aren't the Lord? Despite their inability to save you? Do you find yourself regularly looking to yourself? Or your job? Your wealth? Your family? Your health? Your hobbies? Do you find yourself returning to your former captor, sin? If so, let me offer you a better way. And that brings us to our second heading this morning in verses 21 and 22, where we, where we see where and only where salvation can be found. The words in verse 21 rightly shock us. Rejoice and be glad. After all this death, all this agony, all this suffering, who could possibly be told to rejoice? Well, it's apparent that there is a heavy dose of sarcasm and irony here. Because he says, rejoice and be glad... Not Lady Zion, but Lady Edom. Now, who's Lady Edom? Why is she mentioned here? And, and how do we know that it's sarcasm? Well, if you don't know, the Edomites were the descendants of Esau, Israel's brother. Back in Numbers 20, uh, Edom did not allow Israel safe passage through their land when they needed it. And then, more recent to this text... According to Obadiah verses 10 through 14, they, they joyfully watched as Babylon destroyed Jerusalem. Edom cap, they captured Israelite fugitives, they handed them over to Babylon, and they even joined in the looting. So instead of providing relief to their brothers, Edom betrayed them and gloated over their disaster. And for this act of treachery, God says he would lay them to waste. He says they too would be made to drink of the cup of wrath. They too would be stripped bare. They too would have their sins uncovered. And so the poet says, Enjoy the moment, Edom, while it lasts, because your doom is just around the corner. And so it was. Babylon later destroyed Edom. 
quite ironically. But then what we have here in these two verses, in the middle of this pronouncement of judgment, we find a slender thread of hope. The poet says that Lady Zion's punishment, what, has been accomplished. And as such, the Lord will no longer keep her in exile. Now, as we've said repeatedly, Lamentations 3 certainly contains the clearest expression of hope in the book. But we do find an echo of that hope here in verse 22. 422, Lamentations 422, is a real but slender thread of hope in an otherwise ugly, ugly mess. The pain of the present moment, as we considered last week, was not going to end immediately. Right? Roughly two more generations would come and go before the exile would end. Which brings us once more back to Jeremiah, this time, I think for a final time, Jeremiah 29. 29-11, you knew we had to get there eventually. This coffee mug Bible verse. It's a lot better than it sounds in a coffee mug when you really think about it. He says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Writing to those in exile after the destruction of Jerusalem, Jeremiah reminds them that God would deliver them from that exile. In verse 10, just prior to the verse I just read, he says it would be 70 years. 70 years, and God promises to bring them back to Jerusalem, which, which he does during the reign of Cyrus, king of Persia. So our text in Lamentations banks on the hope of the promise of God. He would restore Jerusalem. He would judge her enemies They would return from exile, and yet the exile and the return from exile under Cyrus was not the true hope that this verse longs for and expects. Consider Psalm 20 with me for a a moment. Psalm 20, verse 6. David says this, Now I know... That the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. And, and then he goes on, he says, Some trust in horses and some in chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So, in verse 6, he says, God saves his anointed. The word anointed is a translation of the Hebrew word that. Uh, where we get the word Messiah. So the Hebrew word Mashiach, Messiah, you kind of see how that they go together. Anointed is just the translation of that. And so you could retranslate Psalm 20, verse 6. Now I know that the Lord saves his Messiah. And when you hear that, immediately two thoughts perhaps come to mind. On the one, you might think God certainly didn't save his Messiah in verse 20 of Lamentations 4. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's Messiah, was captured in their pits and left to die in prison. Zedekiah was hunted down, 
captured and forced to watch the execution of his sons before his eyes were gouged out. And then he was left to die in prison. So what Messiah did God save? David, the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Messiah, died. His sons died. Zedekiah died. Well, this question, which Messiah did the Lord save, forces another jump in history. This time, about 600 years into the future from when these words were penned. In Acts chapter 2, 25-31, so I won't read them now for time, but in that sermon at Pentecost, Peter quotes Psalm 16, verse 10. And he applies it to Jesus, saying specifically that when David said the Lord would not let His Holy One see corruption, Peter says he was speaking about the resurrection of the Christ. Christ, from the Greek word, which... Uh, the transliterated from the Greek word Christos, which is, just means Messiah or anointed one. So the Holy One, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, wouldn't be left to see corruption. And so, according to Peter in Acts 2, God saved his Messiah. Just like David anticipated in Psalm 20. But then another quotation comes to mind. Jesus quotes Psalm 22, 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? in Mark 15:34 when he's dying on the cross. So God did not save his Messiah. God's Messiah was left a mangled, bloodied mess on the cross dying, suffocating, cut off from God. Why? So that God by then rescuing his Messiah from the grip of death 3 days later, he might bring his exiles home. Zedekiah, Jerusalem's Messiah, did nothing to save Jerusalem from the judgment. In fact, he provoked judgment further. Not even his death could atone for them. But Jesus, Jerusalem's true Messiah, gave up his life in exchange for hers. The Lord's anointed died so that his people might live. Jesus was hunted down, captured, and executed. And yet, his death was not the final note struck in a long series of deaths like Zedekiah's. No, his death and his subsequent resurrection was the first note struck in a long series of return from exile. Or we might say a long series of of resurrections. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, we've, we've said a few times throughout our, our work through Lamentations that the exile of Jerusalem was a type of the greater exile that Christ experienced on the cross. And so too, the return from exile, 70 years later, anticipated here in Lamentations 4.22, is a type of the greater return that Christ experienced in his resurrection. And so, back to the question, do you find yourself returning to your captor, your former captor? If so, we ask the question, well, how, do we be, how, how are we freed from exile to sin and death in the first place? It is through the Lord Jesus, abandoned by God and dead for sinners, 
But of course, Jesus did not and could not stay dead. It is through trust in the life, death, and subsequent resurrection of the Lord's anointed that we too are brought from slavery into freedom, from death into life, from exile and homelessness into having a place to call our own. Do you believe that? Have you believed in the life, death, and resurrection of Messiah and so been rescued from your exile from God? If not, I pray that you would and encourage you to do that now. And if you have, if you have believed and trusted in Jesus, do you know that you are not bound to return again and again to your former master, your former captor, who cannot and has no interest in helping you. You can look to Jesus and find help and hope in every need.